0: Welcome to Then and Now, brought to you by the UCLA Luskin Center for History and Policy. We are dedicated to studying change in order to make change, linking knowledge of the past to the quest for a better future. Every other week, we interview thought leaders, historians, researchers, and policymakers about what happened then and what that means for us now. Welcome to Then and Now, a new podcast sponsored by the Luskin Center for History and Policy at UCLA. I'm Catherine Marino. I teach in the UCLA Department of History, and I'm a friend of the Luskin Center. The goal of the Center is to bring the past into conversation with the present, and in doing so, understand how we got where we are so that we can imagine alternative and better futures. And that idea of both grappling with and honoring the past in order to build a better future is truly at the heart of all of the work of our guests today. Caritha Mitchell is an award-winning literary historian, cultural critic, professional development expert, and professor of English at Ohio State University. She's the author of the award-winning book, Living with Lynching, African-American Lynching Plays, Performances and Citizenship, 1890 to 1930, published by University of Illinois Press, as well as the 2018 Broadview edition of Frances Ellen Watkins Harper's 1892 novel, Iola Leroy. Today, though, we'll be discussing her most recent book, From Slave Cabins to the White House, Homemade Citizenship in African-American Culture, just published from University of Illinois Press. Tracing a long sweep of history, this book analyzes canonical texts by and about African-American women to lay bare the hostility these women face as they invest in traditional domesticity. Instead of the respectability and safety granted white homemakers, black women endure pejorative labels, racist governmental policies, attacks on their citizenship and aggression meant to keep them quote in their place. Tracing how African-Americans define and redefine success in a nation determined to deprive them of it, Mitchell shows how these artists honor black homes from slavery and post emancipation through the civil rights era to the quote unquote post-racial America. This book is truly brilliant, um, extremely engaging, and so full of relevance for this tumultuous moment we're in right now. Professor Mitchell, thank you so much for joining us today. We're so excited to have you with us. Um, And um, just want to say how much I love all of your work, and this book especially. So just to start off, I wondered if you could share with us how you came to this um, project and um, you know, like many other readers of it, I've been really struck by this profound intervention you're making to rethink a lot of these really canonical African-American women's novels, not as um, seeing them, not just as protest literature, but seeing how um, they're centering ideals of, of and, and achievement of success.
1: Absolutely. Well, thank you so much for having me. I'm, I'm really excited to have this conversation. Um, You're absolutely right. I mean, the focus on achievement is the biggest shift that the book is aiming to offer. And I would say that the way I came to be so invested in it is that in writing my first book, Living with Lynching, it became clear to me that African-Americans living at the height of mob violence knew very well that they became targets for violence because they were succeeding. It wasn't because they were failing. It wasn't because they were criminal. It was because they were successful in some way and White people wanted to put them back in their so-called proper place. And so once I finished that book with that kind of clarity about the function of racial violence, I really thought to myself, well, what would happen if we took seriously Black people's awareness that they are targeted for success? If we took that seriously, I'm not sure that it would make a lot of sense to read their literature and art through the lens of protest. So then what should be the lens? (laughs) And it felt to me like success should be the lens because if they understand that their success makes them a target, then my question becomes, how do they continue to be so focused on pursuing success then. And once you start reading for that, you start to see just how much African-Americans are defining success, redefining success, defining it again, because every time they have any kind of achievement, they are responded to with violence. And so sometimes they have to adjust their conception of what achievement is in order to continue to pursue achievement. But it was absolutely clear to me that pursuing achievement is exactly what they do. And as you said, it's so important to look at Black women's literature and art in this way, because they are clearly dealing with the violence that's coming at them because of racism, but also the violence that's coming at them because of sexism. So when we look at people who are having to figure out strategies of perseverance, right, um, at the intersection of both racism and sexism, then that means that we're going to gain even more insight about people who are just dealing with the intersection of racism, for example, right? Um, Cis Black men who are just dealing with racism, we're going to gain insight into how they pursue success too when we look at Black women who are encountering both. So for me, it became important to really focus on Black women Um, for their strategies of perseverance, their ways of continuing to pursue success despite knowing that their every achievement and their every assertion of belonging was going to invite attack.
0: Yes, and you define this sort of um, quest for success discussion of how to find achievement and recalibrate um, the meaning itself of achievement through this concept of homemade citizenship which you say is, quote, a deep sense of success and belonging that does not def- depend on civic inc- inclusion or on mainstream recognition. Um, and I was really struck by um, both the fact, you know, that it does not depend on civic inclusion and would love for you to in- explain that a little bit more, but also the way um, that it it works in a in a two-pronged way. I mean, the notions of success, as you're saying, are so bound up in um, Black women's liberation and and sort of freedom from oppression, specifically on an individual, in these individual women you're looking at, but it's so linked to a broader community sense of belonging To
1: Absolutely. No, that's great. I mean, I think what I'm invested in here is to understand how, if I'm going to look at the literature and art through the lens of success, then so often what you're going to encounter um, seem to be very conservative portraits of how these figures in the literature are defining success. And so there's a kind of temptation to assume that therefore Black people simply are defining success in conservative ways. And I think what you're helping me think through is the way that homemade citizenship is geared toward understanding that there has to be something else there, right? I mean, even in slavery, if Black people achieve anything like what white people define as valuable, they will be attacked for it. So even if it's just the heteronormative you know, decision of a partner, because it looks like what white people value, enslavers are going to make sure that black women can't choose their romantic partner. So anything that looks like the success that white people value is going to be attacked. So my thinking was, how could it possibly be that simply wanting what white people have is the motivation? It just doesn't make sense. I mean, then if you fast forward to you know maybe the 1930s, 1940s, 1950s, 1960s, when there's kind of this movement toward home ownership. In those decades, does it really make sense to say that obviously Black people just want the American dream? I don't think it does, because they know that any semblance of that achievement is going to invite attack. So for me, I was trying to think about how can we understand Um, a sense of belonging that is beyond U.S. citizenship because U.S. citizenship is all about excluding African-Americans. That's the point of it. That's how it's designed. So then I was trying to develop a conception of, you know, something beyond that. And I think that belonging gets to it, right? So the idea of tracing homemade citizenship, that it's not about civic inclusion and mainstream recognition is one way for us to understand how is a sense of belonging cultivated in a society that's determined to exclude you? And one way that I can, you know, kind of gesture toward one of my answers to that question in the book is that it's about these practices of belonging, right? To my mind, debate is an embodied practice of belonging. And because Black people are within their own communities debating how to define achievement, that is part of what makes them a community. And that is part of what creates belonging. And that belonging is the thing that's separate from, and in addition to anything that even looks like US citizenship. That's why it's homemade citizenship because it goes to that sense of belonging.
0: Right. Thank you. And um, and your points, too, about the, um, the way that white violence attacks um, any sort of semblance of um, white mainstream notions of um, traditional domesticity. It's a point that you make throughout the book. And I found your notion of homemade citizenship so capacious because it um, refers not only to the Crafting of citizenship for people, Black women, especially, who've been denied um, citizenship from its, the founding of the nation, but also the domestic, the way you really center the domestic space and effective relationships in the home, um, how homemaking, as you say, is so central to belonging. And I should have, you know, said earlier, each chapter really it traces this story from um, you know, Harriet Jacobs and Elizabeth Keckley. Um, and, um, you know, Nella Larson and Zora Neale Hurston uh, up to, um, up to um, uh, Toni Morrison and Octavia Butler and Michelle Obama. So I think that it's in these sort of embodied, um, I mean, these, these stories of, of um, these authors' stories of African-American women I think that the lens of homemade citizenship helped me understand some of these um, quite canonical texts in a totally new way that that emphasize, I mean, for instance, your um, rethinking of Harriet Jacobs's um, um, sort of evasion of of sexual violence through this lens of success. And also, um, I mean, we could go on with many more examples Um, But I thought one other example that was powerful was rethinking Zora Neale Hurston's Their Eyes Were Watching God um, and thinking through how this often quoted idea that that African-American women represent the mules of the world misses that at that moment of that quote, there's an important narrative shift happening around um, the character's embrace of a sense of success, a sense of pleasure and Um, self-affirmation.
1: Yeah, thank you for that. Thank you for that. I mean, it's, I mean, you've brought a couple of key issues to to the forefront here. I mean, the first thing I think I want to say is part of what um, focusing on domesticity in the book ends up yielding is a way for us to understand that Black women care a lot more about the bonds and affection, as you put it, right? Um, They care a lot more about that than they do about a particular domestic configuration. And so that's part of the reason why when you look at Black women's domesticity, you can see that they are homemakers even when they don't have that title, even when what they Develop in their domestic spaces doesn't look like a traditional idea of a homemaker. They're being homemakers regardless of the domestic configuration. And that became important to me, right? Because part of what I'm invested in doing in the book is having us understand that this violence that comes your way is what these artists are trying to highlight. And as we watch the way that they highlight it, um, even when or especially when they achieve something that looks like a traditional definition of domesticity, then that should only underscore for us um, the way that all Black intimacies, including queer intimacies, are part of this conversation around homemade citizenship. There is no real division if you understand how much these figures that I'm studying are willing to change their definition of success. It's the fact that every definition gets attacked (laughs) that they end up highlighting for us, right? Um, And so your point about their eyes were watching God and, you know, the shift that I'm able to trace there around that famous moment of mules of the world. I mean, I I think that was one of the really delightful surprises for me too, right? It was one of those moments where I said, oh, wait a second, when you use success as your lens, this is what you notice. (laughs) Um, And so what became really important was recognizing how when Nanny tells Janie, um, when she shares her story with her about what life has told her about how Black women are the mules of the world, part of what we watch happen there is Janie's investment Of developing her own definition of success. And she insists upon having pleasure be a part of that definition. And so that text ends up being such a fruitful way for us to understand there is debate among Black women even about how we define success. Some of us are convinced that it is all about propriety and the, you know, Um, proper home that hopefully is also going to come with financial stability. And others of us are convinced that it should include pleasure. And that is part of what we watch with that shift in how, um, you know, Janie is going to define success moving forward in her journey. So yeah, that was, I would say to you, like one of the delightful surprises of using success as a lens.
0: That's great, and yeah, that was only just one example of so many in your book. wrote, right? I just was so amazed by the profound shift that that lens really provides, and I think it's going to be incredibly generative for scholars and everyone going forward. And it's sort of that example gets at the point I was trying to make, um, but didn't put very well earlier. The way that you know all these definitions of success vary, but they seem to foreground um, belief in one's self worth. Um, not in an individualist way, you know, and and different definitions obviously apply to different experiences and people you're exploring in this book, but they're also never um, totally individualistic because they're always engaged in this broader community conversation, as you put it, and that is intimately bound up in these debates, and that intimately is bound up in this notion of belonging. Absolutely. I, I just think it's so powerful how you're kind of bringing these books together to show um, how this community conversation has actually been building on itself over, you know, a long period of time. Um, So I just, I guess to zoom forward to the moment we're in today, um, I mean, there is just so many ways, there's so many ways in which your book is so relevant Um, in terms of the, um, the, the white supremacist violence we're seeing, Discursively and and physically and materially, um, the global pandemic that is disproportionately affecting women of color and families of color. Um, so many, you know, crises happening. And so I just um, I wondered what you could tell us about why you think this rethinking and reframing around success and homemade citizenship is so important right now. Um, or put another way, how does this history you've shared with us of African-American women's homemade citizenship help us navigate or just understand this moment we're in today?
1: Yeah, and that's such an important question and one that I could go in about 500 directions <laughs> on and I will definitely you know, limit myself. Um, I think that one way I see what I learned from writing this book applying to our current moment One way I see it is with the example that all of these figures give us in terms of not just coming up with an answer on how to survive and thrive and then coasting, but rather that you continually are recalibrating. You're continually rethinking how do I want to move in this moment where I'm attacked At every hand, and that is absolutely the case uh, that we're in right now like that is the reality. But what I hope homemade citizenship does is it helps us see that this is not a new circumstance by any means, and that if we can start to look at earlier generations and look at them not just for their protest strategies, but for their strategies of perseverance, then we can take certain tools from that, right? I mean, one of the ways that this question kind of resonates so powerfully for me is I think about the kind of debates that happen sometimes when people try to create a false tension between earlier generations of activists and current activists. and one of the things that struck me is that actually Ruby Bates was on a panel where she was actually saying, no, no one owns the liberation struggle. We're all doing our part. We all pick up where it is. And I think that that really goes to the heart of the fact that it's always been a debate and the community conversation has always been a debate. And so if we accept a false narrative that says something like, well, you younger activists don't know what it was like to go through X, Y, and Z because this is what it was like back in the day, younger activists are quite valid to say, well, look at the fact that here we are, just a few years ago, the Voting Rights Act was gutted. And right now I'm watching the the, the killing of black and brown people on repeat on social media and vigilantes, not just the police, are doing the killing. Don't tell me I don't know what it's like to live under this kind of state-sanctioned violence. And state-sanctioned even when the people doing it are just ordinary citizens. Don't tell me I don't know about that because that is my current moment too. So I think that for me, thinking in terms of community conversation allows us to really get real about the way that we are all simply doing what we can to figure out how to navigate this incredibly violent context that is violent in different ways but is still intensely violent and that part has not changed and so we will continue to need different strategies of perseverance so i think that is the main way that i try to take the lessons from you know the the case studies basically that i use throughout this book right throughout generations and i think the only other thing i'll say about it is i just found so refreshing too the way that these artists were preserving debates within the community such that they were making sure that, okay, if there is an accepted idea or an accepted definition of success in our community, so let's say, for example, in the chapter where I look at Raisin in the Sun and um, Wine in the Wilderness, so Civil Rights Era drama and Black arts movement drama. If the definition in the community conversation has become dominated by a particular definition of success, Black women always are saying, I don't know that this accepted definition includes me. I don't know if this definition is giving me room to breathe. I don't know if this big definition that we act like we are agreed upon is actually representing me. We need to continue this debate. And I think that that is the other lesson that I take from the artists that I look at is they are not giving up on the community conversation even when it doesn't fully accommodate their own goals. And that's something that we just have to keep investing in.
0: Mm-hmm. That's inspiring, um, you know, a hopeful message for right now. Um, I mean, your book itself really brings us up to today and really makes these links for us, I think, too, both in the, you know, penultimate ultimate chapter where you're looking at this um, this rethinking of a quote unquote post racial you know moment in this in the '70s, um, but also to to getting to today. And I loved how your book um, really gave explanatory power to um, you know the 2016 election through this notion of know your place aggression. This is a concept you've written about before. Um, but I, in the, the last chapter, you explore um, the Know Your Place aggression specifically that was targeted against um, Michelle Obama, as well as her own public persona that you analyze as a text and how she herself um, did the work of homemade citizenship in the face of that um, violence. So um, I wondered if you could elaborate a little bit on um, how Michelle Obama functions in your, in your book and your thinking.
1: Yeah. Thank you for that. I mean, I think, you know, one way that Michelle Obama ended up being really important to me is that she so clearly understood, even though there was nothing about her position that would allow her to say it out loud, (laughs) she clearly understood that her every success would be opposed. Um, And so in that way, I saw her as being very much in the tradition of um, Black club women of the 1890s and early 1900s who were making very deliberate decisions around hair, clothes, bodily presentation, and even home decor, um, all for the good of the race. And so I saw the way that because she knew she would be opposed, because she knew she would be attacked in every way, all of her decisions were in that tradition of understanding that she was in the public eye, she would be attacked, but she also could um, use semiotics, as I put it in the book, right? This idea that we are conveying meaning, we are interpreting meaning, not just through words, but also through objects and gestures and, and 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 so on. And so it felt to me like that was an opportunity to see how she was using her decisions about hair, clothes, and bodily presentation, as well as how to decorate the White House to... Um, you know, navigate the violence that she would encounter, the discursive violence that she would encounter, if nothing else, but also still give some messages to Black and Brown women who needed affirmation. But I think, you know, the other thing that you're reminding me of is know your place, aggression in relationship to her becomes so important in the CODA, um, which I call from mom-in-chief to predator-in-chief, because it feels to me like, American voters. Now, thank heaven. Voter suppression was required for Donald Trump to win. I I, I, I thank heaven for that because it is the only thing that makes me believe in any sense of decency in this country. But nevertheless,
0: he didn't win the popular vote. This
1: is true. And so that is like, you know, my one thing that I hold on to. At least that was required. But nevertheless, 63 million million Americans did vote for them, for him, and including 53% of white women. And so part of what I think that does for us is it really allows us to think about um, how 2016, put American culture on display. If we had any doubt about what are the most common words and deeds of American culture, that election put it on display. And so part of what I'm interested in is the way that, you know, the way that he disrespected President Obama in order to have political ascendancy, questioning his citizenship and so on. It went from President Obama to Hillary Clinton. And that, for me, was a way for us to understand that U.S. citizenship is actually designed only for straight white men. And so you can be a straight white man who damages institutions, damages um, communities, but American Dream is for you. American citizenship is for you. It is not for even a powerful white woman. And that is what the treatment of Hillary Clinton shows. Again, not just based on Trump and what he did, but based on the support he had for it. But to your question, the reason Michelle Obama ends up being important in the coda is because she actually directly addressed the release of those recordings of him bragging about grabbing women. And what I think is happening is it's a way to grapple with the way that if American citizenship continues to function the way it does, then part of what we have to contend with is the way that part of what she's doing was just leaving a record. Leaving a record of how America's most common words and deeds are all about putting someone like her in her proper place a black woman who has been successful a black woman whose success had to be gained in the face of all kinds of attacks that were based on both race and sex the way that she testified to the the fact that those comments of sexual predation that he nevertheless got voted in <laughs> after it was spread she makes it clear that other women of every background, if you felt a certain amount of shame hearing that, you are not imagining that you should have felt that shame. That was the point. That is what happens when people in power are allowed to operate in ways that are all about putting you back in your so-called proper place. It's all about having you give up your ambition, all about having you not go for achievement. And so to me, that's part of why it was so important to end on the note of Michelle Obama showing us her examination of know your place aggression, even though she doesn't do it explicitly, because it allows us to see American citizenship right now is geared toward just telling everyone who's not a straight white man, Um, that they need to know their proper place. And it's especially galling when the straight white man who is getting this support is so much the opposite of anything admirable. It's especially galling, but that is exactly the point of the violence, right? (laughs) That's the point of the violence. That's the point of know your place aggression.
0: Right. Thank you. That was powerful. And I mean, I just want to reiterate how much I love the ending the coda with Michelle Obama's contribution to this community conversation um, and her making a homemade citizenship, one that um, emphasizes African-American women's right to live free from sexual and racist violence and harassment, to have love, admiration. It really just continues on this intergenerational conversation that you've laid on in the whole book. Yeah,
1: and could I just add really quickly, the other thing that's so important about your emphasizing that is I think part of what was so powerful for me to recognize too in this study is the way that even when the texts that I'm examining seem to be all about addressing a mainstream audience, they still participate in a community conversation. Michelle Obama is an example of that. Obviously, she's the first lady. What she does addresses mainstream audiences, but even as she does that, she is participating in the community conversation. It's not just about responding to mainstream audiences.
0: Right, exactly. I found that super powerful and important. Um, and um, just wanted to reiterate more generally how much I love how your book itself just really illustrates this point that is so central to this center and podcast, the um, relationship between the past and the his- and history, um, you know, not only recognizing um, and grappling with the history of slavery and various forms of violence, but also um, as I think you've put it elsewhere, sort of honoring the ancestors, really by thinking about this work in terms of success, you're really honoring a much bigger vision of what these um, artists and authors are trying to do and really tracing those connections with, with history. Um, so I um, I will, for the sake of time, I would love to continue the conversation, but I'll end it here. I just want to point out too how much, um, in your own words, you know, you're really highlighting how these authors, quote, steer the community conversation in ways that will empower African Americans uh, to, to quote, create a future of possibility for the collective. And I think that's exactly what your own book does. So thank you so much for it and for joining us today in this conversation. Thank you. Such a pleasure. Then and Now is a production of the UCLA Luskin Center for History and Policy with support from the UCLA History Department. Then and Now can be found on Spotify and Apple Podcasts. Let us know your thoughts on this or other episodes of Then and Now by emailing us at luskincenter@history.ucla. Special thanks to our executive producer, Maya Ferdman, and to David Myers, the director of the Luskin Center for History and Policy, And so many thanks again to Professor Karitha Mitchell for her fabulous book, From Slave Cabins to the White House, Homemade Citizenship in African-American Culture. Thank you for joining us this week on Then and Now. Then and Now is brought to you by the UCLA Luskin Center for History and Policy, where we study change to make change. For more on our work, follow us on Twitter and Facebook at our handle, at Luskin History. Our show is produced by Maya Ferdman and David Myers, with original music by Daniel Reichman. Special thanks to the UCLA History Department for its support, and thanks to you for listening.